Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by SeatGeek. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop for tickets, for sporting events, music concerts, and more. Use the promo code HANGUP in the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first purchase. Or shop online at seatgeek.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 19th, 2015. On this week's show, Spencer Hall of SB Nation will join us to talk about Michigan State's bizarre last-second win over Michigan in the college footballiest college football game of this or any other season. We'll also discuss Daniel Murphy's hot streak, Jose Bautista's bat flip, and the other big storylines of the baseball playoffs. And we'll talk about Lamar Odom's near-death experience and his Kardashian-abetted position at the nexus of the sports and entertainment worlds. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Good job hosting. How was your travels? Last week, my travels were good. Let's both ask each other questions mm-hmm. simultaneously. That's how this works. We can't we can't Did decide who's hosting anymore. <laughs> I swam a little bit. I where were on, you? I went on some slides. Do you want to tell people where you were? I went to Hawaii. I'm going to talk about it in the in the afterball. I can't stay wait. tuned. I'm sure you can't. Uh, with us from New York, it's Mike Pasca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pasca and a personal friend of Kim Kardashian. Um, I hope that you will be reading a statement from her later in this program. <laughs> I hope to. I hope to give voice because this is what she needs. I've got some whimsy watches. I'm going to get right down to, to business. Did you guys hear the uh, latest hot 
new audible trend. Was Omaha? Yes. Then Aaron Rodgers said something funny. Do you want to tell Stefan what it was, Mike? Oh, it was chocolate related. Philip Rivers against the Packers. Chocolate Phil. <laughs> chocolate Phil. Now, I want you to know that I think my favorite NFL films uh, piece of the last 15 years was about Peyton Manning's audibles. And I've subsequently named a lot of my fantasy teams for them. And Peyton used to always say one of his, you know, dice, ice cream, alert, chocolate. Chocolate was one of his audibles. So there is precedence, but no chocolate fill. So do you think that Rivers was trolling Manning? And is it Phil F I L L or Phil P H I L? Is there a guy named Chocolate Phil that he's There's, referencing? Well, I think forty-seven percent of the humor was that his name is Phil, and that he was describing a dessert version of himself. He may not have realized. Yeah. He may have been thinking F I L L and not realized that his name is Phil. Yeah, back when Drew Brees was helming the Chargers, he used to audible Meringue Drew, Linza Tart Drew. Linza Tart would send the man in motion. Another whimsy. Jeremy Rapanich on Twitter pointed out to us that a Broncos player had a mouth guard that had vampire fangs on it. So this is kind of a complicated one. I learned in subsequent whimsy research that a mouth guard company had sent whimsical, allegedly whimsical mouth guards to Broncos running back uh, Ronnie Hillman. So do we uh, take off whimsy points because this is a company, a company trying to make waves in the whimsy space? Also, vampires aren't whimsical. If it was like a Powerpuff girl, then it would be whimsical. Well, and, and I think this is going to raise a serious issue for the NFL's uniforms uh, committee. Because if you can't draw on your eye black, you're not allowed to have special eye black, why should you have messages on your mouth guard? And I think the vampire message is a strong one. It could influence the kids. I think the NFL needs to correct right, What if Cameron Hayward got a mouth guard from a corporate entity mm -hmm. where he didn't actually write Iron Head on it to honor Yes, and that's, what, father, I was right? going, that's what yeah. I was going to bring up. Cameron Hayward uh, will not be told to take off his eye black that says iron under his right eye and head under his left, but he will continue to be fined for it uh, for a second offense. It will be $11,576. But potential whimsy, the iron part drops away on a on a play and then all we have is head and it would seem that cameron hayward is just labeling body parts <laughs> <laughs> all right final whimsy for me was the colts fake punt where it was the worst play in the uh, nfl since the jim zorn era swinging gate for the washington team where they moved all of the players except for the snapper and the uh, quote-unquote quarterback off, off to the sideline. They immediately uh, snap the ball, and the guy gets swarmed over by five people. Mina Kimes on Twitter, former uh, Hangout panelist, noted that in the future, the swing gate play should be called the who farted play because everyone just moves away from <laughs> the people with the ball. This was the worst play ever. And it was, it was whimsy. It and was the well-coached Patriots sure smelled it out. <laughs> they did. Did you, did you see Chuck did. Pagano? Say, why did he snap that? Yes. Afterward? Yeah. He took responsibility after the game, but it seemed like maybe he was For just doing that in a perfunctory way because it's expected of him <laughs> while actually blaming his players during the, during the game action. Correct, coach. Time to uh, mention our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week. We're going to talk about Mike Pesca's rules for cold weather sports. Uh, it's getting a little nippy out. 
I put on my hat and gloves when I biked into work. So it's time for Mike Pesca's rules for cold weather sports. You need to you need to know these rules before you engage in such activities. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on this podcast, the Hang Up and Listen podcast, and various other Slate podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at that same URL. It is slate.com slash hangupplus. With Michigan up 23-21 and 10 seconds to go, the Wolverines only needed to punt the ball away to beat rival Michigan State. Really, they only needed to punt the ball away. Michigan State was going all out for the block and had nobody back to catch the punt. You could imagine uh, Michigan punting it, just kind of the, the ball floating in the air and then just bouncing gently as the clock ran out. But that's not how it happened. The Wolverines' Aussie punter seemed overqualified for the job. Blake O'Neill had kicked an 80-yard punt earlier in the game, one of those win-probability doohickeys, calculated Michigan's chance of success at 99.8%. That meant Michigan State had a 1 in 500 chance to win. Now let's listen to what happened. Here are the University of Michigan's radio announcers describing it. There's nobody back there to field the ball. Oh, he fumbled the ball! Now he fumbled it in the air, and it's picked up by Michigan State at the 20, the 15, the 10, and he's going to score! No time left! You've got to be kidding me! That you could not write! Michigan had the game on the line, on the foot, and Michigan State wins it with a 37-yard fumble return on a punt that is mishandled by Blake O'Neill. I thought he was going to cry there at the end. I like that he invented uh, idioms that heretofore had not existed. Michigan had the game on the foot. He also kind of sounded like he turned into Chris Farley at, <laughs> at points of that clip. Um, and, also, didn't hear... by, and also, just to be clear, you could write that. That's not that hard to write. Wait, that's true. What you didn't hear there is that the player who ran the ball back for touchdown, Michigan State backup safety Jalen Watts-Jackson, broke and dislocated his hip while either diving into the end zone or being piled on during the subsequent celebration, which created kind of an awkward scene. Way to ruin your own party, Jalen Watts-Jackson. In a post-game interview, Michigan State quarterback Connor Cook asked, what the hell just happened? Who better to answer that question than Spencer Hall, the editorial director of SBNation.com, the editor of Every Day Should Be Saturday, and a man who is somewhere between college football's moral conscious and its drunk Twitter uncle. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Oh, thank you. Pleasure, gentlemen. Um, and this was sort of a quintessential college football moment. I think the best since the Auburn-Alabama kick six from 2013, and that it was a rivalry game, an amazingly well-played game, and then it ended with kind of a cross between total incompetence and just unbelievable, you know, competence on, on the other side. And it all played out on television in a way that I think um, was just fantastic. They got the, like, sad Michigan fan who was instantly memed right away. It just kind of spoke to me as the moment that personifies college football. How did you take it all in? Yeah, it's it's like there's a lot of things that in in retrospect make sense about this and then a lot of things that don't. This is the reason I prefer college football to the NFL because I like a bigger margin of error 
when somebody says, oh, I, I like watching the NFL because it's the best against the best. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm not into that, like, extremely perfect, deformed form of anything. Like, as an aside, I never like it when you give an artist exactly what they want to make an album because inevitably it's not their best stuff. Like, when you get Steely Dan to the gaucho stage, man, you get Steely Dan to the gaucho stage where they're like, no, people. We've removed the error. We've just got machines. Yeah, yeah you're talking about Spike Lee up until um, Inside Man, and then they ran the back in. Sure, you just pick whatever artist you like. It, it doesn't work, right? I like a wide margin of error. I like, I like things like, for instance, Michigan really shouldn't have been ahead in this game. They really shouldn't have. Like, look at the stat sheet. You know, Michigan State's outgaining them. Uh, they have more yardage. They've got more first downs. They've got more yards per play. You know, Special they, teams. They, yeah, well, there's there's special teams. You know, there's by the way another thing too. This is an Aussie punter who was captain of his Australian uh, football team. Like that's whatever they call that. Yeah, yeah, Aussie Aussie rules, right? Um, as long as we're embracing cliches, we'll we'll just mention that this is an Aussie rules punter who is one reason that that they are so attractive in terms of recruiting them is that they're great ball handlers. They're used to catching the ball, and you typically don't have to worry about muffing a punt quite as much if you have an Aussie rules guy. Plus, they can do the moving kicks, and they just tend to be a little more athletic. Right, this is not an eye kick a touchdown type kicker. No, this is not a converted soccer player who's not used to working with their hands. This is, in fact, somebody who might be a better ball handler than some people on you know, the offense, honestly. Because if you've ever tried to play Aussie rules, it's impossible. I, I have no idea how anyone does it. I've attempted it, and it is, it's probably one of the most complex and difficult sports I've played in terms of what you're doing with multiple parts of your body at once. It's like right up there with kiteboarding. Uh, but yeah, this is maximum college football because... It takes place, one, in this environment where you've set things up for maximum emotional stress. This isn't in Michigan State, right? This is not a happy ending. What you get is the thing that I start belly laughing watching, which is everyone who doesn't want to see this happen being forced to watch it. <laughs> like that's, that's the, that's, I mean, that's the like horror movie element of it, that this is in Ann Arbor when you're supposed to have this resurgence, when we're going to take the title back from Little Brother who we shouldn't even have to respect anyway. And Michigan State forces them to watch it in the most excruciating manner possible, which is, yeah, a muff punt. I will say that Aussie Rules football is a fun game to gold judge, though. You get to make those hand signals. So as you analyze and as we overanalyze the play, I would say 99 out of 100 coaches not only make that decision, but also probably uh, Ape Harbaugh's formation, which afterwards was criticized for not, I don't know, having a guy behind the punter or extra guys back. But can you say anything? It was uh, unfortunate that there was a fumble on the snap. Extra unfortunate that he didn't just fall on the ball afterwards. That probably would have thwarted Michigan State. Is there anything that we could say that really was a coaching mishap as opposed to just a crazy fluke play? No. And that's the best part is that every single straw you've seen here gets grasped for. Well, maybe it was the formation. No. No, that's a fine formation. Like, how... How desperate are you to rationalize the irrational when you're getting deep into the special teams formations playbook? Like, I don't know, Spencer. It's uh, they, they had an advantage. They had a new, big numerical advantage at the line, and that probably was. I mean, Dan mm -hmm. Wetzel deconstructed this on Yahoo, 
And, you know, he did the forensic analysis of where everyone was standing and how many were on the line. And they had two gunners, one of whom was gunning against nobody. So they were severely outmanned. But still, everything that needed to go wrong went wrong in exactly the right way, exactly the only way that it could have gone wrong to lead to the outcome that we saw. That that formation allowed Michigan State to have a uh, 99 Point, uh, four. seven, yeah, nine, or, four. Yeah. No, it was higher. It was four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you, 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 like they had three hundred, like oh, three hundred plus yards punting in the game. Like I, I get it. I would be doing the exact same thing if I were a Michigan fan. I would be zapruitering the hell out of this as long as I had to in order to try to grab some explanation other than you lose. So let's talk about how the moment was produced on television. Brian Curtis had a great piece on Grandland about the the headline was the meaning of college football viral fan shots. There was the sad Virginia fan earlier this year slumped over the side of the mm-hmm. the stadium after they lost to Notre Dame. The sad piccolo player from Villanova during the NCAA basketball tournament. That was that was a classic. And if you rewatch the end of the game with thinking that there are like people in the production truck making the decisions, it was very artfully done it was sort of like steely dan we're in the production truck mm-hmm. just twiddling mm-hmm. knobs in there but spencer this is kind of the great thing about fandom uh in college football now it's that you've got your, you've got spencer hall on twitter you've got the espn producers in the truck like creating these instantly gifable moments um what do you think about how those are created and and sort of what happens immediately after the play is over i'm amazed how quick they are at it like, I know that the primary image people will take away from the Michigan-Michigan State game and the reactions is the kid with glasses. He's got kind of reddish hair, and the camera just goes straight to him. And I wonder, like, what are those instincts? Did you just go, oh, that, that looks like a kid, and he's going to be real sad. Get <laughs> like, some glasses on that kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, is there some inner bully in the production truck who's like, oh, yeah, get the geek. Get the kid with glasses. He's going to look especially sad when this goes wrong. That I'm astonished at how quick they are. I'm astonished at how you'll see them. They flash like they'll go two or three, right? They'll kind of scan and go mm, two, three, and then they'll find something. And the person in the truck usually makes such a quick decision that I'm astonished that they can do it at all. Not that they can find people because in Brian Curtis's piece, um, which full disclosure, I did talk to him about that. Brian Curtis's piece did a good uh, job of explaining how this is kind of public theater, right? This is kind of rending your clothes and pounding on the coffin at a funeral while you scream why. You know, it's something that, you know, people enjoy doing is this like public display of either grief or, or celebration. And I, I just, I love that we can capture that. I don't know why you, you can't necessarily do that in every single sport. You can do it in a lot of sports. But college football just happens to be good for that for a lot of reasons. A lot of which is like, just logistical. I think a lot of the stadiums are just set up so that you're very close to the fans and all of the cameras are probably have really good angles on them. I also well, think and, I, and students sit together and 18 to 22 year olds are, are you know, more hysterical than NFL fans are going to be. Perhaps more drunk. Perhaps more drunk. 
I also think that practice helps because you see TBS, which uh, isn't in the business mm-hmm. of doing sports all the time, always going to the cliche shot. Hey, if you sit in the first four rows of a close baseball game, if you are somewhat attractive and if you touch your face in any way, especially steeple the hands over the mouth, that will convey I am nervous and you will be on TV. And in fact, when the uh, Mets beat the Dodgers, they almost missed the last pitch because they were going through the cycle of these cliches. Well, that's not even TBS, Mike. Fox is the one Fox, that has, has raised yeah, that to yeah. an art form in the last 15 years. Art form. And, and it's a very it. deliberate production strategy. I wanted to say a couple things about this game. One, speaking of Steely Dan, you know they have that lyric about taking the Wolverine up to Annandale. So this was like taking the Wolverines down to, I don't know, Sadness Town. Two, I enjoyed or it was sad or it was complicating just like you, Spencer, enjoy the complications. I enjoy the complications of the hero getting injured on the play. And the analogy I thought of was it was as if Kevin Moen, the guy who scored on the play for Berkeley, was the Stanford band trombonist all wrapped up in one. And the third thing I would say and for us to consider is <laughs> what do we think of the fact that Michigan tumbled in the polls none? So this is to say that on the one hand you could say well they the, you know the voters watched this game and they realized it could have gone any other way. But I would say a couple things. One, if this crazy play were the most important significant play and it happened in the second quarter and then every other play went according to form. You could have a crazy play sometime in the game. I think Michigan would have gone down further in the polls. It would have we would just perceive this as more of a Michigan State overall victory and in fact it was. And the second thing is, isn't it weird that we talk about, and I agree that playoffs are a much better system than subjectivity, and yet in playoffs, a crazy win like this is a crazy win like this, and the, and a crazy loss like this, you are the total loser and you are out forever, but yet somehow we... I mean, I've read a lot of thought like, yes, Michigan didn't really deserve to tumble that much in the polls because we all know they're just as good as Michigan State. The polls and the playoffs are just not lining up about what they mean at all. I mean, we got to pay less attention to polls. We don't. There's no reason to rank 25 teams. There's no reason to care about anything. I don't think you should do a poll before November, honestly. Like, I don't. I, I do the top whatever where you just rank, okay, these are teams that are undefeated. Like, right now, that's what you can do with it. I don't know why you rank more than, like, seven teams. And I know why people do it. I know why. I just don't care. <laughs> I don't care because, one, that requires a lot of organization and filing, and I, I hate putting things in order. It's why I never use, like, uh, Google+, Plus because they're like, you could organize your friends. No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't organize anything, right? Much less, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know which teams would be in the playoff right now, but I'm not going to make a definite case for anything because our sample size is tiny. And, if and they're all going to play each other a bunch of and, them anyway. And they're all going to play each other a bunch of times anyway. I mean, in all fairness, if you're into polling, why are you going to drop Michigan that much? What? Because it, we, we, I think we punish teams too much for a loss, i.e. for actually playing them. And this goes double for out-of-conference games. Because I think if a team loses a good out-of-conference game, then no, don't knock them down that much. They actually played somebody. You know, Baylor doesn't do that. Baylor should suffer for doing that, even though they're really cool and they're really a team I like a lot and I enjoy watching them as much as anyone. But if you're going to poll, if you are one of these poll-type people and you really enjoy the artificial ranking of things, then then go ahead and do it somewhat sensibly. Yeah, every every article that begins, if the playoffs started today, should only be one sentence long and the back half of the sentence should be, that would be very confusing. 
Um, that'd be that'd be what? cool. I like stupid things. That'd be great. Start tomorrow. <laughs> I'm I'm on board. I I appreciate the compliment. Final thought here. Uh, well, two final thoughts. Number one, this goes into the now increasingly populated genre of Michigan punter horror <laughs> gifs. There's a a dark horse candidate for best sports gif of all time is Michigan punter looks horrified, which is uh, a game against Ohio State. The ball bounces off the uh, punter's head, and he just has a look like there's an axe murderer chasing him. Yeah, I don't well, know. Uh, that's that's Will Hager up. Yeah. And then finally, I think this this game just speaks to the great. You know, talking about other reasons why college football is better than the pros. I think we can all be excited that Michigan is good again under Jim Harbaugh because the Big Ten was just a cesspool of for for non. Midwesterners, it's like, why would anyone want to watch these games the last five or 10 years? And now these are games that you actually want to affirmatively tune into. I'll be watching Michigan, Michigan State. I'll be watching Michigan, Ohio State. And so I think we can all be thankful when college football's rivalries become or, you know, reassert their interestingness. Yeah, I don't really buy like the the argument for any team that like college football is better when X because... Um, especially if it's a team I don't like, I like to be fully transparent about that. Like when people <laughs> when when people say that Notre like man, college football is better when Notre Dame's better. No, it's not. Notre Dame attracts the worst possible people to your sport. You don't want it. They're just they're complete they're complete brand shoppers. You mean Catholics? Go, Are you speaking of Catholics? Is that who you mean? Yeah, that's a quality move. That is a quick pivot. <laughs> no, no, I mean brand name people. I mean the kind of people who are like I like winning and winners. I have an entire sack full of things that make me almost look like a person and not like a lizard masquerading as human, right? Like like the per- same person who has this like closet full of like Duke, Yankees, Lakers, <laughs> Cowboys, uh, probably not Cowboys now, but this, this like giant closet full of winning badges so that they can cover themselves in winning. And if you know like the least amount of college, about college football, you might be a Notre Dame fan. I don't know if that's an Alabama fan now because that's kind of a harder thing to get on. Because uh, I think they see the people who root for Alabama and go, mm, I, yeah, I don't know if I want to get on board with that culturally. But that's, I, I think when Michigan's better, I like it because generally I, I enjoy the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry. Not because I enjoy it being better for college football. I just like to get to November and know that I'm going to watch this like grim death match somewhere in an overcast stadium. Um, I think that's a great place to, to end it. And Michigan has cool helmets too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spencer Hall, editorial director of SB Nation, maestro of uh, Every Day Should Be Saturday. Ohio State Best guy a, to follow on Twitter. Ohio State has the stickers too. They do have the helmet the stickers. Buckeyes, yeah. 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 You don't like a sticker? Spencer doesn't like a sticker. If they had googly eyes. I'm indifferent. That's my official political stance in Ohio. What if they State. added slinkies to their helmets for every good play? Mm-hmm. How is better. that not an unnecessary? How is that a not an unlawful benefit? Those stickers. Everyone should be suspended. <laughs> they also get gold. They also get gold pants. Remember that they get the little gold pants necklace for playing in the playing in the rivalry game, and that's not an Wait, illegal it, benefit. It, but it's a, it's like a charm in the shape yeah, of football pants. It's like a charm. The fan base that, by the way, indulges in I think the single most man carding policing. <laughs> is is Ohio State because they're just generally a cloud of faceless, angry dullards <laughs> who, who really, really enjoy adhering to the lowest possible common denominator standards of masculinity. 
They really are. They're the biggest bunch of like protein pounding uh, MMA loving bros you've ever seen in your life. Like just that guy. That and yet, guy. The, and like, yet like, the helmet and the, the pants charm. The helmet and pants charm. They're like, no, no, no. It's cool to wear that piece of jewelry. <laughs> That's fine. That's like perfectly masculine. And while, <laughs> while I agree in theory, you can wear whatever you want. That's cool. Uh, well, I agree in theory. It's weird that you think it's cool. <laughs> inconsistent. <laughs> it's we wild. Have... I mean, I respect the wild inconsistency, too, but I'm going to point it out. We don't ever want you to leave, Spencer, but it's been great to have you. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Pleasure, y'all. Thanks. Spencer Hall, ladies and gentlemen. You can follow him on Twitter. Best best uh, person on Twitter. At EDSBS. This week's episode is sponsored by SAP. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash SAP HANA to learn more. The home teams are both up 2-0 in baseball's American and National League Championship Series, with the Royals beating the Blue Jays 5-0 and 6-3, and the Mets winning over the Cubs 4-2 and 4-1. While the Royals' Game 2 win was a team effort, with the Kansas City bullpen shutting the Blue Jays down, and Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, Alex Gordon, Alex Rios, and Kendris Morales collecting RBIs in the decisive seventh inning, the Mets have been led by a much smaller crew. Starters Matt Harvey and Noah Syndergaard, and reliever Juris Familia doing the pitching, and mostly... Just Daniel Murphy doing the hitting. A little Grandy mixed in there, Curtis Granderson. Murphy homered again on Sunday. Now his home runs in four straight playoff games and five postseason games overall. With those home runs off of four of the best pitchers in baseball, the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw and Zach Grinke, and the Cubs, John Lester and Jake Arrieta. Murphy, who before the last two weeks was best known for missing the first two games of the 2014 season for paternity leave and saying this year that he disagrees with the gay lifestyle, will be a free agent when these playoffs are over. And he's made himself a lot of money over the last couple of weeks. Well, maybe make himself more if he stops talking about the gay lifestyle. Uh, Mike, he is a uh, member of a long line of unlikely postseason baseball heroes among among your Hatchers, Eckstein's, Lemke's and Sterling Hitchcock's. Maybe throw a Pesednik in there, too. Um, how much have you enjoyed the Daniel Murphy playoff experience? To the extent that while I thought I was pretty firm in my open acceptance of the gay lifestyle, after the fourth straight home run, I'm beginning to reconsider. <laughs> He's maybe got some good points about that. And listen, to be fair to Daniel Murphy, it wasn't bigotry. It's just ignorance. He's being what he thinks is a good Christian. In fact, he has a plush Pope Francis doll in his locker. Coincidence? I think not. Daniel Murphy's a great hitter, and he's a great specific kind of hitter that gets you called a professional hitter, which is to say, ha does, almost never strikes out, still in this day and age when the smart people know that striking out is a consequence of doing the good things in baseball. Not striking out still is valorized, and it is kind of impressive how seldom he strikes out, has power to all fields, and studies and works hard, but also doesn't have too much power. He doesn't hit a gaudy amount of home runs. And I find that the ones who get called professional hitters, you know, it, that label eludes the guys who hit 40 home runs. I don't know why. They're not.
not professional. So that's always been Daniel Murphy, but he's really put his swing around and he's uh, he's connected quite sweetly against the number one, two, and three ERA guys in baseball. That's Arietta, Granke, and Kershaw. And to have faced those guys, Lester's a very good pitcher, but to th- the top three major league performers in ERA, crude stat, sure, but it says something, tells you that this guy is on it, plus stealing the extra base, which, by the way, we should also note that Ron Darling called a couple days ago, and Johnny Damon debuted that against the Phillies in a World Series, so it's not unprecedented. But stealing the extra base and making the uh, game ending play with a diving catch at second, he's not usually good at second, he's having a fantastic and compelling postseason. Yeah, and he is a good hitter. Um, Professional, in fact. His his OPS plus uh, average, uh, this this is the statistic that measures how you hit versus the league average, uh, and totally average hitter would be 100. His um, OPS plus for his career is 110, which means he's 10% better than average. Um, So he's good. He's not this good. Um, He's hitting like Barry Bonds in this postseason. He got intentionally walked... In front of Joanna Cespedes, who was hitting so well uh, about a month ago, a few months ago, that people were saying he should be the MVP of the National League, even though he'd played like four games yes. for the Mets. And I think we're, we're keeping this in the appropriate context, because when somebody does play well in the playoffs, um, you know, whether it's Larry Brown in the Super Bowl or somebody else in some other sport and some other playoff structure they can get overpraised and people can say oh like this guy's actually you know he he's underappreciated he's he's going to maintain you know he's going to hit four home runs in every consecutive game for the rest of his career but you know according to the New York Daily News the Mets are like oh we're still not going to resign this guy <laughs> we're going to like uh, enjoy this and yet, for as long like, as it I as would it not continues. I would not compliment the Mets unwillingness to resign someone <laughs> as proper perspective someone I forgot one of the times columnists duly noted that they think they're running a team out of Milwaukee fair fair but someone will look at his postseason numbers, particularly the last four games, and say, hey, we should pay him above market value. I mean, and also say that he's a winner, right? That winner. He's he, a winner. He performs well in the clutch, in the clutch. every single time. Every single time. Um, he is 30. He is going to be a free agent for the first time. Uh, he has been compared to players who earn about $10 million a year. He's getting paid eight this year. The Mets could offer him, what, $15 million or something? in that tender situation that nobody ever signs in baseball. Um, So he will capitalize on this, but I find it hard to believe that we still operate in a baseball culture, though maybe I shouldn't, where general managers might look at this extremely tiny sample size and say, we need Daniel Murphy because he's all guts and glory and he's a scrapper and he's, he's a professional hitter. Don't you have to be older to be a professional hitter? Don't you got to be like 34, 35? You usually have to be a little worse at fielding, and he's not great at all. But... And you got to be a little bit fatter, don't you? He's, he's bad enough he's, at fielding. He's, he's bad, bad enough. At, but you know what? The thing is, he's bad at fielding, but he could play so many different infield positions slightly below average. Right. So that's an asset. So the thing with um, the Mets' success this playoffs, and also I think you could make this case for for all the other teams, and what it what it shows to me is that if there's any one aspect of your team that's outstanding, then there's really no excuse to not try to win the World Series every year. The Blue Jays have the offense. The Royals have the bullpen. The Cubs are probably the most Mm well-balanced team in the playoffs. They've got young talent everywhere. And Um, and the Mets have the great 
young pitching staff. And there was a time this season when the Mets were really struggling with offense. They were refusing to spend money when I think a quote unquote, like kind of smart fan might have said, you know what, let's, you know, not try to go too overboard. The Nationals are the better team. This isn't really the Mets here. But with the way the postseason is structured and the way, you know, somebody like Daniel Murphy can get hot. It's certainly not unprecedented. Like it happens every year that someone you don't expect gets hot. So if you have an aspect of your team that is great and you have to factor in that maybe some something you don't expect will go well too. I think you have to have an optimistic view of things and you can't just say, well, maybe it's not our year. Well, you have to argue that the thing that is going great will continue to go great. In the case of the Cubs, the young hitting. In the case of the Mets, young pitching. Young pitching is not something not that, that you want will, to build that around. Not that it will, but that it can. And it's unpredictable. It and so sure. um, there are enough seasons where you have no chance that when you do have one, you can't just throw it away and say, oh, well, our pitchers will be healthy next year. No, they probably won't. Well, it goes to the point that you made a couple of weeks ago, Josh, about also serving the fan base when you recognize that you've got that kind of an opportunity. And in the Cubs' case, I think that's a case in point. I mean, the the last series for the Cubs, that was so much fun to watch what was going on in Wrigley and to watch them clinch the, to clinch the series there and to have this optimism that they could actually get to the World Series. It's fun to watch what's happening in Toronto. It's too. fun to watch what's going on in Toronto, too, and even, and even in in Kansas City, which and I, whom I dissed last week. And let me also make the point as far as the Mets hemming and hawing and signing someone. No one in that organization had the attitude, oh my God, we've been blessed by not God, but restrictive contracts that are four aces. The four, Their entire rotation is paid less than, I'm not even going to say Jonathan Neese, who came in for a very fine inning and was a member of the rotation, because Neese gets $7 million this year, and all those other guys, Matt Harvey's the highest paid at $600,000. Familia also only gets paid like $600,000. So when you have someone saying, I'm going to give you four of the best young arms, and their total salary is going to be a third of the guy who's the sixth man in the rotation, for you to not go for it would have been criminal. Now, I'm glad glad they did. But it also harkens back to this whole, you know, when we talk about the Seahawks being geniuses, it seems like a way to win. I'm not slotting the Mets into the World Series yet, but the Cubs, the Mets across sports is to take advantage of these horrible contracts, you know, that allow you to keep these young arms under team control and at artificially depressed prices. It's the one one area where I'm somewhat sympathetic to Matt Harvey. Yeah. And his, and his innings count. That- yeah. I think that's fair. All right, now we can talk about whether we're sympathetic to Jose Bautista, who flipped his bat. I don't. I don't think "flip" is really the right verb. He flung it mm-hmm. in triumph after hitting a three-run homer that led the Blue Jays into the AL Championship Series, beat the Rangers in the AL Division Series. And the thing that I want—I mean, I—I I think we probably can all agree that it was a fantastic moment. It was there wasn't anything kind of mean-spirited about it. And if there was something mean-spirited about it, who who the hell cares? But um, there was a player for the Rangers, Sam Dyson, who said he's a huge role model for the younger generation that is coming up playing the game and he's doing stuff kids do in wiffle ball games and backyard baseball. It shouldn't be done. So my question for you, Mike, is when there's like a dissenting voice like that, and there are certainly, you can certainly find people on the internet who are outraged by it. Do we exaggerate the extent to which people were 
outraged by this just to kind of show like how fun and enlightened we are because really i think only stupid people right thought that this was stupid so should we just say it was great and not try to like create an argument that like it <laughs> you know that it it wasn't stupid but just say affirmatively it was good and just ignore the the stupid argument that's probably just a small minority i'll, t- I'll tell you what my thoughts are there are Last week, we talked about the ESPN baseball broadcaster, Jessica Mendoza. And we there was some guy at some radio station who tweeted something. We held that up. And was that using almost, you know, with the internet, you don't have to ever create a straw man. There's someone to say something stupid. And perhaps we use him to stand in for the face of sexism. Maybe that's going on there. But with the bat flip, the things I would say are, one, it wasn't just the one or two outlier guys. The way that, and I played this on the gist, and I talked about sports and society, the way that ESPN with with uh, Schilling and Kirkjian and it was Ravitch, Ravitch didn't really pile on, but uh, Schilling was very much against the bat flip and Kirkjian was saying, eh, you know, I've come around and this is just the way of the world and what are you going to do? So to me, that represents the establishment and the establishment thought is that this was kind of not a good thing. The second thing I'd say is that there are always a good 20% and that was a poll on Dan Patrick, you know, was it right? Was it wrong? And since Dan Patrick himself was saying, come on, let's celebrate this, I would assume that his audience would be more in favor of the bad flip, but still 20% said it was wrong. And that's about the percent that a candidate like Donald Trump is seeing. So I think that in society, there's always this peop- this certain percentage, and I think it's somewhere around 20% of people who nurse grievances. And you could say, let's just ignore it. But every once in a while, this rears its head. And if we don't take note of it, if put it this way, if, if everyone ignored it, and if there wasn't such widespread backlash, the next time someone flips the bat, I think the conversation won't go, which is how I predict it'll go like, come on, aren't we over this now? So maybe this was the conversation that convinced us we're somewhat over it. And the last thing is it's so funny to me that they're talking about kids are going to emulate him and the solution because we wouldn't want kids to emulate bad sportsmanship is we got to bean the guy the next time we play him (laughs) that's that'll that'll instill good sportsmanship it is fascinating to me how conservative broadcasters on sports television are and i do think that there is a gain to be made by someone to whether it's TBS or Fox or ESPN to bring in voices who are not just like people who are not gruff former players, but just people who embrace the game and embrace the things about the game that like people say online and just how everybody was saying like, this is the greatest moment of these playoffs, like, and all the Major League Baseball social media accounts were celebrating it, gifting it, vining it. Like, I don't see anything wrong with that happening, like, internal to the game broadcast rather than having to be, you know, added externally. Right, right. Because we're still operating where there are sort of parallel worlds. One parallel world is the world of advanced metrics and more complicated and intellectual analyses of what happens on the field. And the other is the sort of joyful celebration of what happens on the field and recognizing that for all of the money and for all of the dipshit ownership groups that run these teams, let's not forget that the Mets are controlled by the Wilpons who lost their their shirts Why can't to we forget Madoff. That? Well, because I haven't heard anyone really discuss it lately in uh, all of the happiness over the Mets' good fortune. Great. Um, so we just mentioned it there. Um, but- Why- 
there's all of that. There is the, the reality that, that most people consume sports the way you know in, in a way that makes because it, it makes them feel happy, and you don't really get that from broadcast because broadcasts try to to drive right down the middle of the road. There is no room for whimsy, and there is no room for for sophisticated analysis. I think if anything, they are a little reactionary and they hire these old players that have these old school values, but it's, I'm not even saying out of touch, it just seems reactionary, conservative, um, more in keeping with the fact that we're going to play God Bless America in every seventh inning and have flyovers. But I think there are correctives to that. I do think a lot, I mean, it would shock me if Gus Johnson were really upset <laughs> just by the way he bombastically mm-hmm. announces a game with any sort of exuberance. And I really think Ron Darling's an excellent corrective to that because it's not there was a good split between whether the Utley slide was clean or dirty but you know Darling's going to come out uh, in the side of I, I don't have to be an old school table pounding traditionalist but also he has enough um, credibility where when the uh, in in one of the games this is the game after Utley they thought the umpires were warning both teams and Darling just yells no so he has enough credibility as a traditionalist and is a brilliant guy but is also not a stick in the mud old school unthinking chest thumper and there's also something about it that is like politics, Mike, where you can't stray too far. You can't be all the way out on the left or all the way out on the right on a mainstream broadcast. I think you can be so all the way out Ripken on the right. You can be close to all the way out on the right. Eh, I don't know. I mean, I guess Kurt Schilling was on the air That's for a, a long time. That is a uh, extreme infield shift. Also, let me just end this with a plea from for sanity from the listeners. We're all, you know, sophisticated adults here that it, it annoys me when people say why do you hate the royals you don't talk about the royals why do you hate why do you hate? i mean stefan does hate the royal so that's fair but <laughs> he doesn't like, even like the lord song it's crazy <laughs> sometimes things happen that we want to talk about and because they make interesting conversation and the royals have been good but we wanted to talk about these other things it doesn't mean that i don't like your team Let's just, like, uh, settle down here. I mean, that's like some sports talk radio bullshit. Uh, we'll talk about the Royals some other time. Or we won't. And that's fine. <laughs> 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 All right. Time for a word from our sponsor this week, SeatGeek. It helps you find the best value when you're looking for tickets. And it's offering $20 off to listeners who use our promo code, which is HANGUP. This is a big sports time of the year. you got your baseball playoffs, hockey. Start of the basketball season. You've mm-hmm. got NFL, LSU, Alabama tickets. If LSU uh, doesn't lose to Western Kentucky, which I'm very afraid that they will, LSU, Alabama tickets are going to be a pretty penny. So you need to get on SeatGeek. You need to get on your SeatGeek app. It does a lot of things that other ticketing sites don't. Pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop. When you're on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available all on one page. They also have a feature called Deal Score. It ranks every ticket on the market with a 1 to 100 value, and it plots the best deals on a color-coded interactive map, so you can identify the best ticket values in the building at a glance, which is very valuable. It shows you the ones that you want, shows you the ones that you don't want, all color-coded. SeatGeek's mobile app also makes the ticket buying process seamless and easy. Once you find a ticket you want to buy, you can complete the purchase with just two quick taps. There's no faster way to buy tickets. And we've got a great deal for you, the HangUp listener. Download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code HangUp in the app, and SeatGeek will send you $20 
once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. So download that free app and enter the promo code HANGUP today. SeatGeek, get it. Enter the promo code. On Friday, ESPN's Ramona Shelburne reported that the condition of basketball player Lamar Odom had improved. He remains in critical condition in a Las Vegas hospital, but um, he is now breathing on his own. Um, He was hospitalized last Tuesday when he was found unconscious at a Nevada brothel. 911 dispatchers were told that he had used cocaine and taken tablets of herbal Viagra. The 35-year-old Odom was a New York high school basketball legend, college star during a brief tenure at the University of Rhode Island, a two-time NBA champion with the LA Lakers. But his fame as an athlete was marginal compared to the attention he's received since marrying Khloe Kardashian in 2009 and appearing in an array of Kardashian-affiliated reality TV fare. Odom's Kardashian connection made him a tabloid target, and in 2013, TMZ reported that he had a serious drug problem, um, reporting that seems to have been corroborated by recent events. Odom's mother died of cancer when he was 12. He had a child die of SIDS. His best friend uh, recently died uh, from heroin addiction a few months ago. Lamar's reaction to that last death was captured in a scene from Keeping Up with the Kardashians, uh, the TV show on E! In this clip, you'll hear Lamar's ex-wife, Chloe get interrupted by a phone call from Lamar, who is sharing the news with her. I was thinking I want to rent, like, a big yacht and, like, go somewhere. Go like, and where? Just, like, you cruise on a boat, like, Beyonce and Jay-Z style. I know, and, like, but I'm saying, like, you kind of, like, you don't Saint have, like, Bart's a destination or, or somewhere you want to go? I don't know, St. Bar- I don't know. I just got the number to a yacht company. Uh, Did you, so you're really trying to do this. Hello? I'm so, so sorry. Lamar's best friend since he's been like 12. Jamie just passed away unexpectedly. This is all just really upsetting. Mike, this uh, reminded me of the Saturday Night Live sketch, the parody of Girls where Tina Fey plays an Albanian refugee. And she's kind of in their world and they're talking about, oh, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the person that I that I want to be. And she's like, I got bitten by a cow and I lost my my arm. It's like Lamar Odom doesn't fit in this world. He's had real tragedy in his life. He's had an incredibly difficult life and he managed to transcend a lot of the terrible things that happened to him and have a successful career. But it, you know, has been kind of dragged back down. And it seems like being in this world has not been good for him. And it just seems like such a strange fit, but it's one he opted into. So how do you kind of grapple with what's happening with Odom now and his kind of involvement in the Kardashian land? I think it's easy to strike out against the Kardashians. But for this incident, would you say that he's been chewed up and spit out by that media machine? I mean, you know, at what point in the life of Lamar Odom could we go and point to it and say this is when he was riding high? In fact, I think that he seemed happiest when he was – he had a couple great years with the Lakers and before he was traded and went down on this spiral, he was deep into the Kardashianism. I mean, I just think that even if he's 
seems like a sweet guy. And I don't say that as a pun because he's addicted to candy, which is a very funny video. But, you know, I've talked to him a few times and he's definitely, to me, seemed like a good guy. He comes across as a good guy, but guileless and you know, had so much orphaned at age 12 and never went to uh, one high school for more than a year and never went to one college for more than a year. And a guy like that is going to have, I mean, it's more than likely that he's going to have significant amounts of tumult in his life. This came to a head and was terrible. But I, you know, I don't, I think you separate that from all the Kardashianism and say that he was trending towards not a good outcome. Well, I don't think that the Kardashians are the, you know, death of American culture. I'm not going to send an angry email to NPR because Mike Pesca, <laughs> who used to work at NPR, talked about the Kardashians on Hang Up and Listen. But I think we have many, many examples of reality television being not the best thing for many different people and many different walks of life. And I think it was, you know, before even um, this latest incident, there have been signs that Odom was kind of besieged by TMZ. I mean, he has been kind of taken to a level of celebrity or a type of celebrity that we don't really see in sports and that's reserved for the kinds of people who are on the cover of People and Us Weekly. And actually, there's another clip that I think we should listen to. There was in August, TMZ had just run a headline about Lamar, you know, stalks Chloe to Soul Cycle. And Odom was very upset by this and confronted a TMZ cameraman. And we have a clip of what Odom said to that cameraman. It's hard for me to keep my composure. Uh -oh. To everybody that I know and that supports me, I'm sorry, but it's just it. The dog, the dog has to bite back. That's it. Y'all won. Y'all beat me down. No, I degraded me. She said I would do everything in the world. I'm a womanizer, a drug addict, everything. Bam. You know what I'm saying? Bam. Listen. I probably couldn't even get hired by Home Depot right now. Bam. Because of how people look at me. Bam. It's over. If it happens again, I will air everything out. I think we got to put into context where Lamar Odom came from and how difficult his circumstances were. But at the same time, you also have to recognize the time that he grew up in, what basketball was like, what recruiting was like in New York City particularly. He was featured in New York Magazine in high school as part of a, a story about the Nike Adidas Wars. Um, he bounced around from high school to high school, not because he was going to get a, looking for a better um, set of teachers, but because he was wanted to play basketball. Um, he played for uh, Bob Oliva in at Christ the King in, in New York City, who is a guy that mentored many of the best New York City basketball players, but he ended up leaving and going to one of those, those Redemption Christian Academy, I think it was called. His tenure at URI, which you mentioned, Josh, was completely pockmarked. He originally was going to go to UNLV. There was a Sports Illustrated report that someone had taken the SATs for him, or there was other... Um, uh, cheating involved in, in, in taking the entrance exams. Uh, URI let him come as a non-matriculating student for a semester, didn't let him in, then reversed course and let him in. The university president, whom I interviewed at the time, uh, told me that he felt that he wanted to make exception for Odom because he showed signs of being a good student. And I sat down and I talked to him and looked him in, in the eye. His coach was Jim Harrick at URI, who had been involved in all sorts of, of issues at Georgia. I mean, 
he stayed one year. I, I had done a column for the Wall Street Journal that reported I got a hold of uh, his transcripts. Five incompletes later were changed to B's. He wound up getting four-letter grades in 18 classes. So this is a guy who's been used. He's been used. Yeah, this is a guy who's been used to kind of every stage of his life. But I don't think we could argue that his life would be better if he wasn't a preternaturally gifted basketball player. I think that basketball Correct. has given him a lot. It's And there have also been people circling him his whole life who have been trying to take from him and take advantage of him. And I think it's you know, easy to see this latest phase of his life in the same context. Somebody but, who's but very is, troubled and has addiction. Right. And, and it is, but it is also impossible to know exactly how the, the people who are using Lamar Odom contributed to his personality and to his addictions over the course of his career. Um, getting the kinds of passes that he got and showing the kind of indecisiveness and particularly when he was in high school and college, advice about where to go, whether to sign with an agent, whether to turn pro, for someone who grew up as unstable as Lamar Odom, and look, we can't psychoanalyze Lamar Odom, but certainly the conditions in which he was raised and the people that hovered around him and tried to influence him had to affect the way he became as a professional. And by the way, the stories about Lamar Odom, Mike Wise had a piece up on ESPN over the weekend about Odom testifying to his genuine goodness as a human being. Um, talking to a guy that was in his employ for a long time, saying, this is the one guy that cared about me and cared about other people. How do we then parse his decision to become part of reality television and how that contributed to his, his the end of his career? I don't know that we can. Well, you, you're right that we shouldn't psychoanalyze, but it's just hard not to think about a guy who grew up without a family making the decision to join kind of the most famous family on earth at this point. And there's an interesting piece on Slate about how he was treated sympathetically by keeping up with the Kardashians. You know, he was somebody on the show or in the tabloid media on, on, the, show. on the show, on the show yeah. that he was seen as somebody who had issues, but was genuinely, you know, as we've said, very likable, seemed sincere, seemed grounded in a way that the other, you know, quote unquote characters on the show were not. Mike, if, you know, having met him in a rep reporting context, I think you said that he was somebody that you rooted for and just seemed like was a good person. Yes. Um, and so I think that that's how he's perceived by a large portion of the American media consuming populace who are not sports fans. And he's like, has 4.4 million followers on Twitter. You know, the only basketball players who have more are people like, you know, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and Shaq. I mean, this guy, this is somebody who's genuinely famous, who, you know, I I assume the three of us collectively, like, I certainly, I had to go back and, like, look at how TMZ had covered him and look at some of the clips from the Kardashian show, because I'm not following this at real time. Like, those of us who consider ourselves primarily sports fans, I think are just not cognizant of how famous this guy is and i think that people genuinely like do care about him and and sympathize with him 
Yes, when I talked to my girlfriend about this, who knows him zero from the basketball context, and I know him zero from how he was portrayed on their Kardashians, we both agreed that he was a lovable, sweet guy. And we both came to those conclusions from totally different areas. So I don't know. This is why I said I don't know that he was ill-served by being married to Chloe, if that's a real thing, or I know they're going through a divorce, or um, or were. Um, and, and and they could choose, you know, the people who put together that show could choose how they portray anyone on that show. And I guess it was in their interest to portray Lamar as a sweet guy, even though there was this divorce. But maybe that's because he is. And maybe that's because former Kardashian basketball playing Bo Chris Humphreys isn't a sweet guy. But yeah, America has... You know, I didn't stop to think, oh, of course he's on the tabloids. Lamar Odom is famous. But I didn't stop to think he's famous because of the Kardashians. I just realized, oh, yeah, that's a little bit to me. That was a little bit in his fame that kept it going on after he stopped being a good player. But no, that is the huge bulk of it to most people. You know, it's impossible also to know how much help Lamar Odom wanted with whatever addictions he's had. But for being part of this incredibly wealthy, media-obsessed family, it doesn't seem that anyone there might have been looking out for him, at least in a public way. Yeah, and I think it's just... It's sad. It's sad, and Pablo Torre had a good profile of James Harden, who's now dating Khloe Kardashian, and talking about how they went to Chipotle, and the next day there were five different photos and five different media sources of them going to Chipotle, and it seemed like based on reading Tori's story, that Harden is somebody who's very aggressively courting this kind of fame. But you really need to know what you're getting into. And as people, again, who are consuming this stuff primarily as sports fans, it is just kind of shocking the different level of attention that you get as like a tabloid, a subject of the tabloids than as somebody who's written about primarily on the sports pages. And I'm just not sure. I mean, I should say, and and then wrap this up, that if you believe, you know, what you read in TMZ, that Odom's recent uh, bender that led to the 911 call and his hospitalization was actually motivated by his portrayal on the show. And that clip that we played of the, the yacht conversation and the reporting on his friend's death, that Lamar Odom hasn't been on Keeping Up With The Kardashians in the last year or so, but they're still talking about him. And he was upset about the way that he was portrayed and the way that he's talked about. And, you know, as soon as you become a part of the world, that world, you lose control of your image. Like, it's it's not like you're writing about yourself for the Players' Tribune. You have other people creating your image. Well, and to add to how much you believe TMZ, TMZ has reported that he's dead. And he did. they did that last week, so I don't know how much I... All right, now it is time for After Balls. And we talked about unlikely postseason heroes. Baseball Prospectus had a list, and their number one unlikely postseason hero was a guy that I did not know about. His name was Hal Smith. You remember the 1960 uh, World Series, Bill Mazeroski home run, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh over the uh, New York Yankees. Um, but it was Hal Smith who had the three-run homer to give the Pirates uh, the lead when there were two outs in the eighth inning. There would be no Bill Mazeroski without Hal Smith. Hal did, Smith did, was, he, did he throw his bat? Of course not. Of course not. That would Played the game the right way. He did. 
he never had a good season again after that. This was Hal Smith's last good moment. And his name was Hal Smith. Very generic name for a great baseball moment. Mike Pesca, what is your Hal Smith? Well, just to show that I could react to late-breaking news, as I was sitting down to do this show, a comes-across-the-transom, which is what we, I call my email inbox, NBA All-Star Chris Webber to teach in WFU's new sports storytelling program. WFU is Wake Forest University. I think they should have just gone with Wake Forest. Anyway, here's how they, yes, that Chris Webber, as they describe him, five-time NBA All-Star, sports analyst, businessman, and film producer, has been named a professor of practice for the two-year program housed within the university's award-winning documentary film program. He will teach a course on sports, race, and society. Now, the guy running this program is Peter Gilbert, who was one of the producers, though not the director of Hoop Dreams. And they said, he says that he met uh, Weber all those years ago when they were making Hoop Dreams back in Chicago. And then the press release goes on to quote Weber saying, I've been involved with the NBA for 25 years. As I understand firsthand how sports, business, race, gender, and economics mesh, sports storytelling gives us a platform to explore these issues in an academic setting. I don't disagree with that. And yet, what are exactly Chris Weber's bona fides as a sports storyteller? I looked it up on Twitter once or twice. He criticized journalism. He also took issue with with the Fab Five documentary that ESPN won some awards with as part of their 30 for 30. It was a taking issue that Jalen Rose, who calls Chris Webber his brother, blah, blah, blah. But Jalen Rose also called Chris Webber delusional. Webber and this guy Gilbert apparently have a co-production company already where they're planning to churn out some documentaries, yet none have been churned out before. So I guess his first big foray into the world of sports storytelling is getting Wake Forest graduates and undergraduates to pony up the bucks to listen to Chris Weber hold forth as a professor in the field of sports storytelling. Chris Weber is a really smart, interesting guy. When you yeah. hear him, uh, he's uh, like a color color guy on uh, TNT and and other broadcasters. But he has refused to talk about taking money from Ed Martin, which is the booster, which is why the Michigan banners aren't hanging in the rafters anymore. He refused, to be, he refused to be in that documentary. He was yeah. the only one of the mm-hmm. Fab Five. And so I guess the lesson here uh, that you're telling Wake Forest students is only opt in to documentaries that will pay you in a positive light. I don't know what... Uh, what message that uh, sends to the demon deacon undergrads. Well, he and Gilbert claim to be working on, you know, his story and his time, but that hasn't come out yet. What has come out is the fact that he is a professor of practice. Also, what has come out is that... Practice. Practice. Also, what has come out is that uh, his 15 years as a power forward laid the foundation for his current success as a broadcaster, businessman, philanthropist, and steward of African-American culture. There you go. He's in charge. He does, he he's does got have it. a great. He's got he, you, African American culture. Chris Weber's got you. He's got a great collection of African American art and uh, and history stuff. Uh, Stefan, what is your Hal Smith? 
Before Saturday, arguably the worst play in college football history occurred in the Rose Bowl on January 1st, 1929, when Cal defensive lineman Roy Regals picked up a fumble at the Georgia Tech 34, got hit, lost his bearings, and ran 65 yards in the wrong direction before he was tackled by his teammates on the Cal 1. The Golden Bears' ensuing punt was blocked out of the end zone for a safety. The Yellow Jackets won 8 to seven, margin of victory, one point, safety, two points. There you go. I suppose I'll pay a stiff penalty for my boner, Regals said after the game. That penalty was a lifetime Wait, of... Wait, can you say that sentence <clears throat> again? For fun? Yes. <laughs> not a retake. I'm not going to say it again. I refuse. You'll pay a stiff penalty for your boner if you say that again? Correct. Okay. The penalty was a lifetime of ignominy that followed him to his death in 1993. One piece of ignominy was without peer, and that would be the 1965 movie, John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. It's your standard slapstick Cold War football comedy set in the fictitious Middle East kingdom of Fawzia, where a downed Air Force pilot named John Wrongway Goldfarb, has to coach a team of Bedouin warriors and beat Notre Dame to gain his release and rescue reporter Shirley MacLaine from the harem of bumbling King Fawz, played with racist verve by Sir Peter Ustinov, where she's embedded to report a story but fears the king will force her to sleep with him. Think it's a mad, 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 mad world. The Russians are coming. Kooky 1960s farce but with lots of people speaking fake Arabic. Was Shirley MacLaine also a former Houston Astros pitcher? She was. <laughs> How did you know? Before the desert hijinks ensue, journalist MacLaine and pilot Goldfarb had met Not So Cute. Let's listen to the clip. You know, we should be grateful. No one remembers Tom Goldfarb, but no one will ever forget Wrongway. Oh, you four-eyed cobra. I've been running away from that name all my life. In the right direction, I hope. Blow it out your teapot, Iceberg. That's your nickname, isn't it? You've got an insolent mouth, Goldfarb. Go play with your typewriter. This little boy, Laura. <laughs> let mommy Give know. me that. <laughs> They both sound like catches. <laughs> Blow it out your teapot, iceberg. <laughs> Go play with your typewriter. <laughs> All right, it turns out that the McLean character had given Goldfarb his nickname after he ran 95 yards the wrong direction while playing for the Air Academy. But the Smedley 4 computer recommends Goldfarb <laughs> for the U-2 mission over Russia, but... Because he's wrong way Goldfarb, he gets lost, crashes in the Fawzia Desert, where he's met by the king's diminutive son, Prince Amud, who's played by a Filipino actor, who is just cut from the Notre Dame football team inexplicably. He's like the Rudy of this movie? He's the Rudy of the movie. And this is bad because the king had just built a football field in the desert so that the prince and his Notre Dame teammates could practice. I'm not to make team. Not me. Ah! you prince? They can't cut prince from team. How this happened? Because I'm not Irish. They not want Arab. They fighting Irish. Want whole team Irish. Irish? Irish better than Arab? Better than Arab princess. I fix now the Irish. I fix Irish. 
Oh, my God. The king asks the State Department to get him a coach so the prince and some locals can exact their revenge on Notre Dame. Enter Goldfarb. While reading Playboy magazine, the king tells Gold the king tells Goldfarb that if he beats the Irish, he can go home. If he loses, he and the U2 will be sent to the Ruskies. Goldfarb wears a turban at practice. A monkey rides a toy train through McLean's bedroom. The Irish are inexplicably coached by someone named Sakalakis. The Irish refuse to lose to gain Goldfarb's release, so the game is on. And what a game it is. McLean poisons the Notre Dame players with stuffed mongoose, so they leave the field with their stomachs rumbling. The Falls players wear robes over their pads and stand on each other's shoulders in the double hump formation. Someone says, never send an Arab to do an Armenian's job. Oil gushers erupt beyond the end zone. Fans fire guns. Goats and camels storm the field. There's another monkey, this one in a cheerleader's costume. Goldfarb shouts, kill the infidels. Remember the Crusades. Thanks to some Marx Brothers-style chicanery and a ref who's in the bag, Notre Dame is up only 29 to 28. Time's running out. Goldfarb drops to his knees and asks, which way to Mecca, Jack? McLean, Shirley McLean, then runs, gets out of her cheerleader costume, puts on a Fawz uniform, intercepts a pass, and wait for it. Jenny, go back! Go back! You're running the wrong way! Jenny! Oh, no! Go back! You're running the wrong way! She was running the wrong way. Wrong way, Jenny. Notre Dame can't tackle abroad. And as McLean crosses the goal line, an oil gusher explodes, carries her aloft as time runs out. Fawz 34, Notre Dame 29, the future of Western civilization zero. This movie doesn't actually exist, does it? <laughs> it exists. Can you it was actually it was written by William Peter Blatty, who did The Exorcist. Oh, my God. Movie scores and movie accents, a bit less subtle back then. <laughs> Can you imagine if that game was on Sunday Night Football, what our whimsy watch would be the next day? <laughs> the Poisoning the other team with stuffed mongoose. Whimsy or not whimsy? Monkey on the field? Whimsy? Whimsy. 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 I agree. Yeah. The goats? I'm not so sure. The goats look rather menacing. Josh, what's your house, Smith? I've been to 38 weddings in the last 11 years. Is that true? That's an actual, sure? actual count. Yes, I counted like within the last couple of weeks. So if you guys want to start working on the advanced stats, the metrics of my wedding attendance. So some of them have been here in D.C., other places in the U.S. The last wedding that I went to uh, last week was in Hawaii, which is a long way away. And I always enjoy the weddings. Um, always fun. Good to see people. But what happens inevitably is that the weddings are scheduled in conflict with some sporting event. And I'm not some philistine i'll uh, i'll go to a wedding even if it conflicts with some game that's on tv but the thing that galls me a little bit is that and i'm sure a lot of people out there can relate there's always a wedding conflict with the lsu florida game very relatable after ball topic 2006 game as a john and rose's wedding great wedding bad LSU Love florida john game. and rose yeah nice people so what always ends up happening is I'm like looking on my phone. I'm like kind of furtively, not not during the ceremony, maybe during the reception. It did happen a couple of weeks ago at a wedding. I was at that somebody's watch ESPN like came. There was a roar on it during the wedding ceremony. I would never do anything so gauche, but 
this year, I decided to take a different approach. Wedding again conflicts with the LSU Florida game. LSU's on undefeated at this point of the year. Leonard, Even with the time difference? At this time, you know, Leonard Fournette still has all of his limbs attached. This could be a great season. The LSU Florida, it's always a great game. So I decided I'm going to avoid all mention of the game. I'm going to DVR it. I'm going to watch when I get home. So there's a major, major time difference. The game is going to start just before I get on the plane in Hawaii. And so I need to avoid mention of the game for like 12 or 14 hours. And this is some grad level. This is like PhD level time shifting because I also decided I'm going to time shift the Mets Cubs game and I'm laying over in Chicago. So this is not as challenging as like Ruben Tejada trying to avoid the outcome of the Mets game, you know, broken leg. You'd imagine that Ruben Tejada's friends are like, hey, great win for the Mets last night. And he'd be like, no, I haven't watched the game yet. So it's, it's not at that level, but people, my friends, family, they know I like the Mets. They know I like LSU. So I have to turn off all my devices. As I get to the Chicago airport, I know that I like can't make eye contact with any person. So when I get in this state, I just get so unbelievably paranoid it's like the closest that you can get in real life to being in the movie The Game. You got to have your head on a swivel. Like when, as soon as you have your guard down, you know the outcome is going to reveal be revealed and the game will be ruined. Yes. So, I need to get directions to the airport on my GPS. So I turn my phone back on. As soon as I turn my phone back on, I get a text. It's like an auspicious start for LSU. I'm like, "Oh my god. Motherfucker." Like the second I so I turn my phone back off. I like navigate to the bet to the airport by feel, put on my noise canceling headphones. The batteries die in my headphones. And as soon as I take the headphones off and we land in Chicago, I hear, so the Cubs lost game one. I'm like, all right, well, you know, one half of the, uh, the time shifting dream has died. I'm like incredibly sleep deprived and jet lagged at this point. Get on the plane from Chicago back to DC. I see Michael Wilbon in uh, first class, he's like, hey, Josh, how about, how about that LSU game? No, he, do- he actually doesn't know who I am. So I, do- I managed to dodge, <laughs> to dodge that bullet. Get back home. My girlfriend's mother picks us up at the airport. And I texted her when she kindly offered to pick us up because she's like, it's cold. Um, you know, the subways, you know, there, there's track work being done. I text her like, thank you so much. But please do not tell me like who won the LSU game. I don't want to know. Is that the I'm sort of thing to, she would do? I'm trying to avoid. She is from Louisiana. Okay. So it's, it, it, there's like a 1% chance. It's like the chance that the, that the Michigan punter would drop the ball. But I just want, I don't want to let my guard down. So she texts me back, not at all responding to anything about LSU. She's just like, what time is your flight getting in? I neglected to mention what time our flight was getting in, in my like extreme <laughs> need to mention not to say the LSU game. So after all that, I watched the game. I basically succeeded. LSU wins. I didn't know, know the outcome. And then I just like fell asleep. I couldn't deal with watching the Mets game. So I never watched game one. Who won the of game? The Mets. Of what, uh, what game? The LSU game. I think LSU, did, LSU won. There was a fake field goal at the end. Whatever, whatever. I, I just thought you took it too far when you asked every other wedding guest to con- to conduct their conversations sh- with their lips shielded by the play cards, <laughs> it, just in case you unwittingly read their lips. That I thought was a little bit being a bad guest. I just don't know what I could have done differently. I just had to. I had to 
do what I had to do, Mike. Don't you don't you find don't you just envy all these people in the world who go around so blithely ignorant of every outcome in sports? Mm-hmm. I don't know how they do it. They don't know anything. I was once married to a woman who did never knew what was in the Super Bowl. It's like a superpower. How do you do that? <laughs> There's that contest. The for, knowledge. The yes, knowledge. Yeah. To avoid knowing who won avoid the Super Bowl. Avoid knowing who won the Super Bowl. Yeah. The the problem is that it's Having lived this life that I've lived for the last 35 years, everybody who knows me like knows that I care about the outcome of the LSU game. And so you right. can't just mass text everyone in the world and say that you don't want to know what, what happened. Everybody assumes right. that you mm-hmm. want to talk about it. Talk about it. Yeah. And yeah. celebrate with I feel them. like we're bearing the lead a little bit, though. 38 weddings. You're like a, a case study waiting to happen. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. Do you know who else was in? John Goldfarb, please come home. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Harry Morgan, <laughs> Jim uh-huh. Backus, yeah. Telly Savalas. Wow. So for those of you playing along at home, Sherman Potter, um, Mr. Magoo, Mr. Magoo mm-hmm. and Kojak. And, wait, but wait, there's more. Can uh, we gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup? Mm-hmm. Subscribe yeah. to Hang Up and Listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes. No, it's like dot the, com slash late podcast. It's like the funny there, blooper reel that intercuts the credits. Go ahead. When, next, when next you're there, fascinating fact. Leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. The equivalent for Stefan is people coming up to him and telling him about that missed extra point he didn't want to know about. Hang Up and Listen. <laughs> it's part of the Panoply Network. Richard Crenna played... John Goldfarb. Don't know who Richard Crenna is. Stefan, Richard Crenna was the guy in First Blood who said, It's over, Johnny. And then, <laughs> and then Rambo said, It's not over. Nothing's over until I say it is. That was his long rant at the end. But he touches it off with, It's over, Johnny. Wow, he was in the Rambo movies, too. That's what First Blood is. No, I know, no, no, I know. Oh, all the Rambos. All of them. He was like in three of them. He was like the one guy who didn't die. Check out our oh. entire roster podcast at iTunes.com. A young, a young Jerry Orbach. As Pinkerton. I didn't even mention the names of some of the characters. But you will now, during the credits. <laughs> Remember Zelma Beatty and the name of some character. Harry Morgan, Secretary of State, deems Sarajevo, the head of the CIA, heinous overreach. <laughs> the chief of the Middle East Division of the State Department, Miles White Paper. And thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.